bum bum bottom 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 bum
this relief. Yeah. Well, like, let's hope there's an end date for that. Uh, <laughs> let's hope there's an end date. You know, you look back at this past week and I watched less uh, entertainment television. I watched fewer movies. I read fewer comics. We did not slow down on Top Chef. We did not slow down on Top Chef. Uh, and we did not slow down on our screen time. Like Apple gave me that uh, alert saying like, you averaged nine and a half hours oh a day of screen time. And that's not good for your psyche, but I couldn't help it. Like, uh, I know that I should turn off that alert because it's always going to make me feel bad how many hours <laughs> I look at my phone. Um, but at the same time, I'm kind of sickly fascinated. Yeah, but I'm so happy to be back in the Love Nest recording a new episode, especially since it's been so long since we talked Miyamoto and Tomo Ame or Tomoe Ame. And actually, that's a pretty good point right there. That's where we should start our conversation because we have a correction. Uh, thank you, Mark Turetsky, uh, at M. Turetsky on Twitter, for pointing out that we had been mispronouncing Tomoe Ame's name. I'm sure we were mispronouncing a lot of people's names. We're struggling. We're doing the best that we can. But now that we know that it's Lady Tomoe Ame, that is Stan Sakai's pronunciation of it as well, we're going to go with that. Thank you, Mark, for your correction. You guys... Keep those corrections rolling in, because we are here to learn. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Mark will be getting a little extra love from us next week regarding the Tomoe story narrative, as he wrote an exceptional piece for the website Shelf Dust regarding the crucial Usagi Yojimbo tea ceremony issue, Chinoyu. It's the number one storyline I've wanted to discuss with Lisa since we kicked off this series, and I think Mark brings a lot of context and added thought to it with his piece. I'll be sure to mark it in the show notes uh, of this episode as well as next week's episode. Ooh. Ooh, I am so intrigued. And speaking of corrections and omissions and the wonderful listener community we have here at Comic Book Couples Counseling, we had our minds blown last week thanks to Andy W, a.k.a. at Arcanity23 on Twitter. Yes, on our Patreon Slack, our self-professed history nerd, Andy W, mentioned that he was surprised to hear us name-check Natobi Inazo's book, Bushido, Soul of the Samurai, in last week's intro because it was a book that was largely written for a Christian-American audience but it was dismissed by Japanese academics as fiction. Yikes. So I did what any serious scholar would do. I tippity-tapped my way to Wikipedia, and yes, Andy was right. Natobi's book on the Bushido Code was written primarily for the white gaze. And, and we're talking about the Bushido Code as a concept is a Christian American's concept. It's not like he's interpreting the Bushido Code. It's like he created the Bushido Code. The Bushido Code in this format, where it's like a list of virtues, mm. which is the format that Lori Sugawa Whaley uses in Let the Samurai Be Your Guide. Okay, but the term or the idea of the Bushido Code existed before his book. Yes, but it wasn't considered to be, like, there wasn't one Bushido code. Okay. Like, Bushido literally just means way of the samurai, but it isn't like the way we think about King Arthur and the rules of chivalry, where all of the knights followed the same chivalrous code. Every samurai seemed to have his own way he did things. So there's, like, no one way of the samurai. There's lots of ways of the samurai. So how did this book, Bushido, Soul of the Samurai, come to be? Natobi Inazo was a Japanese author, educator, diplomat, and statesman who traveled to the United States in 1884 to study political science at John Hopkins University in Baltimore. He converted to Christianity while he was studying in Japan and became a member of the Religious Society of Friends, which is Quakers, in the United States. 
He wrote Bushido Soul of the Samurai while traveling back and forth between Japan and the US, but it was written in English for Westerners, huh. and it was strongly influenced by his Christian point of view. So it's not a scholarly, historically accurate right. document. It's been a popular and influential book in the West since the early 1900s, but it didn't reach its height of popularity in Japan until 19, the 1980s, where it is still, ironically, the most widely available book on the Bushido Code. Fascinating. I know, weird, right? Yeah, a little weird. Our love guru's book, Let the Samurai Be Your Guide, seems largely influenced by Nitobi's Bushido Soul of the Samurai in the way that it defines the Bushido into several moralistic principles. But there are other descriptions of the philosophies of the samurai, including Miyamoto Musashi. Which is the ronin that Stan Sakai based Usagi on. Who wrote the book, The Five Rings, around 1643. Usagi was a ronin in the 16th century, so his personal Bushido code would have looked way more like the Five Rings than the Soul of the Samurai. But there really, like I said, there really wasn't an overarching Bushido that united all of the samurai. Why is Miyamoto Musashi not our love guru, you may ask? <laughs> because Brad and I do our research separately, and I didn't know this until he was reading his background on the character on the last episode. In light of Andy's revelations, Brad and I discussed switching our love guru to Miyamoto Musashi, but it would require me to cover the five rings in three episodes. And there is so much Usagi Ojimbo, and odds are we'll come back around to these characters and we'll use the five rings then. Or we'll use them on a different set of characters. Who knows? But I do have to quell a little rage every time Brad tweets an image of Usagi with a quote from the Five Rings. I mean, I'm sorry, but I, I just I just love those quotes. As far as I can tell, the only time the Bushido Code is ever mentioned within the pages of Usagi Ujimbo is on the back of the very first comic collection published by Fantagraphics, The Ronin, with one sentence reading, the samurai is the ruling class throughout the land following a warrior's code of honor known as Bushido. Please correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but after doing a quick read through all of the story notes at the back of Usagi Yojimbo Saga collections, Sakai never discusses the Bushido Code at all. Do you know what would be interesting? I literally just thought of this. What? What if we tried to extrapolate and codify Usagi's Bushido Code just from reading these books? I, I mean, I like that idea a lot. That seems like a lot more work. I, and it feels like we probably should have started that a last episode. Yeah. <laughs> All that being said, we've never set a precedent for our love guru's books being historically accurate yeah. or even consistently good. Uh, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It's trash. We've used it. <laughs> we, we enjoyed doing it. But we do always manage to learn something from reading them yeah. and trying to apply their ideas to our characters and to our relationship. But going forward, the plan is to give a disclaimer before getting into Let the Samurai Be Your Guide that Lori Sugawa Whaley is talking about like not the Bushido code, but a Bushido code. Or, or her Bushido code. Right, right. A sincere and heartfelt thank you to Andy W. We learned a ton since our exchange on the Slack, and we're counting on you to continue to give us the historical perspective on all of our characters and love gurus going forward. No press. I'm freaking loving the Slack. I'm so appreciative of everything that's going on over there. We are building ourselves quite the panel of experts. Yeah. We've got Andy W for history. 
Rebecca for zoology, particularly pertaining to birds. Yeah. <laughs> Apple J for molecular genetics. And Jason Ayers for all things WWE. That's got to come up at some point, right? Pretty cool. Pretty cool. It's like we're smart by proxy. <laughs> That's always <laughs> been my strat in life. That's right. Surround yourself with smart people and you never have to know anything. Why do you think I married you? Ah. I'm dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but we get, we we have a little more housekeeping to do because I did promise last week we'd talk a little bit about the origins of Stan Sakai and I do want to celebrate that man a little bit more. Yes, please. There's actually not a lot floating out on the internet regarding his biography. You know, he has a, a decent Wikipedia page. You know, he has his about page on stansakai.com. But beyond that, like, you really have to dig through some interviews to figure out where he came from and what he's up to. Ooh, an air of mystery. Yeah, Sakai was born in Kyoto, Japan in 1953, but grew up in Hawaii where he received his fine arts degree from the University of Hawaii. I've been there. His education. Yeah, that's right. Your family's from Hawaii. Why do we never travel to Hawaii? I went to the University of Hawaii and I watched a production of Carousel. I am jealous. I went when I was five and I, all I remember are the pancakes that I ate on the military base. My sister got stung by a jellyfish and one of the natives told her to pee on her foot. Isn't that not actually uh, something you should do? Isn't that a fallacy? I'm not sure. Do we have a pee expert? To the Slack channel, <laughs> which one of you knows about piss? <laughs> but Sakai continued his education in Pasadena, California at the Art Center College. Uh, and in Pasadena is where he currently resides. Sakai's art career began doing these little like animal greeting cards, some of which were actually featured on the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. Uh, uh, but... He didn't get into comic books until he fostered a relationship with Sergio Argones, the artist and creator of Gru the Wanderer. And the two of them were part of the Comic Art Professional Society, a.k.a. CAPS, in Los Angeles. And he heard that Sakai was doing calligraphy lessons for his local church. And he asked Sakai, hey, could you letter my comic? And Sakai goes... Yeah, I can letter your comic. And that's where Sakai broke into the industry. And from that, Stan Lee heard and saw what he was doing on Gru the Wanderer and made him the letterer of the Spider-Man newspaper Daily Strips. It was also on Gru where Sakai met up with colorist Tom Luth, who would become the go-to colorist whenever color was required on Usagi Ojimbo. Sadly, now that Usagi is being published in color every month by IDW, Tom Luth has exited the book. Rhonda Pattison currently holds the gig and is also going back and coloring all the classic Usagi stories. Here's the truth, though. Like, I like Usagi in color every now and again, but I prefer the black and white. The way we're reading it in The Mother of Mountains and Grass Cutter and all these stories we're covering on the podcast. But I don't know if that's because that's how I was introduced to the character and nostalgia is making me feel that way or if they just look better in black and white pencils. I feel that way about Jeff Smith's Bone, too. Like, I first read Bone in black and white. I prefer that over the scholastic stuff. Lisa, do you feel one way or the other about color versus black and white? Well, the volumes we're reading are in black and white, and I certainly don't feel like anything is missing. Mm -hmm. But it's not like you hand me one of the color issues and I feel like, this is not my Usagi. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, and I'm always talking about how you don't want to be a prisoner to the past and use what you liked before to hold you from any kind of growth. So, uh, you know, relax, Brad, relax. <laughs> As we mentioned briefly on the last episode, originally Miyamoto Usagi was not meant to be Sakai's great 
comics work. He began as a supporting player for Sakai's other Anthemorph saga, The Nilsson Chronicles. As Sakai describes it in the introduction of The Adventures of Nilsson Groundthumper and Hermie, The Nilsson Chronicles was going to be this 2,500-page graphic novel which would have told the story of how Anthemorphs came into being and how the rise of goblins would lead to the inevitable dominance of humanity. Similar to Jeff Smith's Bone, it would start off with a batch of comedic tales but mature into darker realms over time. Usagi was scheduled to appear at the 1,000-page mark, but after Sakai designed the character, the little rabbit Ronin stole the creator's imagination. The Adventures of Nilsson Groundthumper can be found in a hardback collection from Dark Horse Comics, and I recently got my hands on it, and it's fun, and it's cute, and beautifully strange, but it's simply not the unique and compelling creation that Usagi Yojimbo was, is, and continues to be. That's one of the beautiful things about Usagi Yojimbo. It shows how a character can be born into existence and completely take over. The creation is almost as responsible for his existence as the creator. It makes Usagi feel a little more elevated than your average fictional creation, or that could simply be more infatuation speaking. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there's some hurt and abandoned Ground Thumper fans. Uh, definitely, definitely. Like every character is somebody's favorite, but come on, Usagi is way cooler than Ground Thumper. At Mouth Dork. Yeah, come at me, bro. Uh, <laughs> I, I can take it. I can take it. Uh, if you want to experience a little bit more of Stan Sakai's story, I would highly recommend watching the short film, The Sword and the Pen from 2018. It's on Vimeo. I'll try to remember to put a link in the notes here. Uh, it's very short, but boy, do you really get an understanding of Sakai's passion for Usagi Ojimbo and the intricacies that came together for him to come into being. So we now know the truth about the Bushido Code. We have a little more understanding of Stan Sakai, but we're still marching forward with our love guru, Laura Sugawa Whaley. Lisa, how are we applying Let the Samurai Be Your Guide to Miyamoto and Tomoe this week? Yes, our love guru is still Lori Sugawa Whaley and her book, Let the Samurai Be Your Guide, The Seven Bushido Pathways to Personal Success. She's a third-generation Japanese-American and a descendant from the samurai warriors on her paternal side. She is now a life coach, a keynote speaker, who teaches the principles of her Bushido code to help people tap into what she refers to as their soul purpose, S-O-U-L purpose. This book was published this year from Tuttle Publishing, and it's intended to help us apply what she considers to be the seven principles of the Bushido Code to our present-day lives so we can get in touch with our sole purpose. Today, we'll be covering the first principle of her Bushido Code, described in Chapter 1, Courage. She equates the English word courage to the Japanese word yuki, which literally translates to bravery of spirit. She describes yuki as the ability to act, take chances, or engage when feeling challenged in a way that benefits the greatest good. Here's a quote. This concept of courage is the ability to confront hardship or danger and act rightly in the face of it. Sugawa Whaley's interpretation of courage is pretty nuanced, but it does come down to a few key components. Courage takes preparation. That's component number one. A good samurai spends years studying and training, honing their skills. It takes focus and discipline, and even when they reach samurai status, they still have to work to stay a cut above the rest. Or stab, as the case may be. <laughs> Not all of us are called to the blade, to courageous feats with a sword. Thank God. 
but our passions help direct us to our own personal brand of courage. Here's a quote. We all have a calling in our lives and everyone's gift to humanity is important. It is not your job to compare, but be faithful to what you are given. Maybe you're a writer or a musician or a doctor or a business person who does office things. I don't know, but whatever you do, work hard at it and continuously grow your skills. There's a Japanese virtue, Kaizen, which is to always be in a state of constant improvement. Courage takes consideration. Sugawa Whaley makes it clear that courage should not be confused with just a willingness to do dangerous things. Courage is never reckless or negligent. So like bungee jumping or yeah. something is not courageous in this context. Your, that's thrill seeking. Yeah, that's right. Your effort, your time, your resources, and first and foremost, your life all carry tremendous value. And you should treat them like the treasures that they are. Don't waste them. Before doing something courageous, you have to thoughtfully consider what the personal risk is versus the potential gain. Another quote. Remember, courage is not being foolhardy, but rather a determination to succeed in spite of circumstances. Count the cost, but don't let fear be the determining factor. It's often better to try and fail than to not try at all. Courage takes stamina. When you've chosen to do something courageous, odds are it'll get pretty uncomfortable. The cost may be physical, mental, emotional, or all three, but to make it worth it, you have to finish it. There's another Japanese virtue, ganbate, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, I don't know, <laughs> which Sugawa Whaley translates to going for broke. You don't have to succeed every time. In fact, you won't. The more courageous you are, the more times you will fail. But you have to see it through to the end. Fail, fail again, fail better. That's right. There is one more ingredient for courage, and it's a tough one. Courage takes whatever the opposite of selfishness is. I don't think it's selfless because it's not like yourself has no value, but rather mm. you think of yourself's value in context to every other self. So your act of courage can't solely be for your own personal gain. It has to be just and serve the greatest good. And don't expect to be thanked for it either. I think others' admiration and gratitude falls under personal gain. Mm. In each chapter, she includes a brief biography of a Japanese or Japanese-American person who exemplifies that particular principle. Her example for courage is Chinue Sugihara. His father wanted him to be a doctor, but he had a passion for learning languages, so he went against his father's wishes. He supported himself through his studies and became an employee of the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In 1940, he was posted at the Japanese consulate in Kaunas, Lithuania. Polish Jews started trickling in, asking for transit papers for safe passage into the Soviet Union to escape the Nazis. He asked three times for permission from his government to write these transit papers, but they refused. He knew that going against orders could not only cost his life, but the lives of his wife and children. After careful consideration, he chose to negotiate with contacts in the Soviet Union, and he began writing these transit papers by hand, doing 200 to 300 a day, often without food or rest. He received several orders from the Japanese Foreign Ministry and the Soviet Union to quit, but he wouldn't. 
Eventually, they ended up just shutting down the entire consulate. He and his family fled to Bucharest, where they were captured and put into a Nazi concentration camp for 18 months. Even after the war ended, it was hard for Sugihara to find gainful employment to keep his family out of poverty. In 1968, someone reached out to him from the Japanese-Israeli embassy, and it was a Mr. Nishri who still carried the visa Sugihara wrote for him 28 years before. Amazing. From July 31st to September 4th, 1940, Sugihara wrote over 2,000 visas, saving over 6,000 lives. Today, there are over 100,000 descendants of those survivors. That's courage. So it's like the Schindler story. Yeah. He's like a Japanese Schindler, and where is this movie? Yeah. In Mother of Mountains, I think we should be looking for acts of true courage by seeking out the key components. Preparation, consideration, stamina, and the opposite of selfishness. I would say we should focus on the courage of Usagi and Tomoe, mm -hmm. but I know I'm not going to be able to resist pointing out the courage <laughs> in some of our other characters. Sure. But before we can get to that, Lisa, we got to do some words of affirmation. Affirmations! And this week we gained five new patrons. Actually, four new patrons and one patron upgrade. Ew. And in the spirit of uh, Brad trolling me with Miyamoto Musashi quotes on Twitter, <laughs> uh, these are all adapted quotes to make them affirmations. Yes. So up first, we have Rebecca Pierce, who graduated from Smitten Kitten to Dearly Beloved. You know there is nothing outside of yourself that can ever enable you to get better, stronger, richer, quicker, or smarter. Everything is within. Everything exists. You seek nothing outside of yourself. Shara Valentine. Today you will overcome yourself of the day before. Tomorrow you will win over those of lesser skill. And later you will win over those of greater skill. Lindsay Thomas. Your spirit is open and unconstricted. You look at things from a high point of view. Patrick Mullman. You think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world. Mike from First Issue Club. You understand that there is more than one path to the top of the mountain. Yeah. <sighs> that feels great. Yeah, it does. A deep and heartfelt thank you to our patrons. You are truly guides to the tops of our personal mountains. We hope these affirmations help you feel centered and motivated to dive into the rest of your week. Now, getting on to the comic itself and the discussion centered around Usagi Yojimbo, book 21, The Mother of Mountains, which reprints issues 83 through 89 of the third volume of Usagi Yojimbo, which is still part of the Dark Horse Comics years, published between May and November of 2005. That's a gap of eight years between this storyline and the grass cutter arc we covered in our first Usagi Yojimbo episode, a lot's gone down in the lives of these characters between then and now, but the only big arc you need to be aware of is, and spoilers guys, it's sad news, be warned, General Aikida is dead, killed in a battle with ninjas while protecting the Grasscutter sword in the storyline Grasscutter 2. His son, Motokazu, carries on the fight as a page for Lord Noriyuki, hoping to one day live up to his father's honor. 
Here's the basic plot synopsis for The Mother of Mountains, taken right off the back of the book. The discovery of gold ignites a struggle of striking proportions as a power-mad tyrant's lust for wealth threatens to destroy not only Usagi Yojimbo and his companion Tomoe, but an entire innocent village. When plague strikes a border town in the mountains of the Gishu province, Lord Noriyuki sends his loyal bodyguard, Tomoe, to investigate. Once there, she and her retinue discover a truth far more terrible. Hey Siri, define retinue. Retinue means a group of advisors, assistants, or others accompanying an important person. Oh. Yeah, I was wondering what that word meant too. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Siri. Meanwhile, back at the castle, the sycophantic Lord Horikawa sets in motion a plot to eliminate Tomoe in his own way. Only the rabbit Ronin Usagi could extricate a friend from a predicament this perilous if he hadn't ended up landing in the same one himself. If I was Lord Noriyuki, I would never trust any lord I'm hanging out with at the time because they will always turn on you. They will always turn on you. Watch out for those other lords. So let's get into it. Let's just start with the very first issue of The Mother of Mountains. Though the titles on the individual issues is actually The Treasure of the Mother of Mountains, which I think the cover title is actually a an upgrade. I think the treasure of the mother of mountains is a little clunky. Well, Sakai being a movie maniac is making a reference to the Bogart film, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. But I don't think it's, it's not a good reference though, because you've got two ofs. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. I much prefer the title of the mother of mountains, but you know, Sakai loves to just go like nudge, nudge, wink, wink. He loves taking like little plots from classic films, classic stories, classic narratives, and giving an Usagi Yojimbo spin on them. Well, it's a mouthful and I don't like it. Less is more. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the guy selling the book is like, let's just call it the mother of mountains. <laughs> the issue opens with two women fiercely sparring and it's Tomoe and her cousin Noriko. And they seem pretty well matched, but at a certain point, Noriko manages to disarm Tomoe and Tomoe concedes. But after she concedes, Noriko continues to beat Tomoe with this wooden katana and she's like, I'll decide when the match is over, cousin. Miyamoto Musashi would tell you never to take your eyes off the opponent, and that was Tomoe's failing in that arena. I don't care what Musashi would say because he is not our love guru. And whose fault is that? I, what, what I like about this first issue is its structure, how we have this flashback between Noriko and Tomoe battling it out, and then we jump five years ahead to this farmer, and Sakai takes a lot of time just to hang out with this dude on a really bad day. He's looking for some game, he's struggling, he's not happy about it, and the moment he sees some Tokagi lizards, he goes, oh great, I'm not gonna starve, my family's not gonna starve. He fires off a few arrows, they go running, he goes chasing, he slips, he tumbles, he falls down a hill, Boom, cracks his nuts. <laughs> but nuts. at the bottom of the hill, he finds a Gromwell bush. And we don't know it yet, but that is a sign of good fortune, a large fortune. Sakai then jumps the story two months into the future, and we meet a couple farmers in the field. They're working, they're working, they're toiling, they're toiling. And here comes stumbling another guy into their yard, and he looks drunk. Is he drunk? Let's go take a look. Oh my God, he has plague. And then we jump from the farm to Lord Noriyuki and Tomoe and Motokazu discussing how a plague is on the fringes of the community. 
And so while Sakai introduces a, a new threat in the first few pages, he also takes time to play around with the nameless, the faceless. And those are some of my favorite moments within the Usagi Yojimbo saga, is getting to know the landscape and the people who populate it. Usagi is the name on the cover, but he's not anywhere to be found in this issue. No, I mean, this is a Tomoe issue, and it's really a Tomoe storyline. The Mother of Mountains is her book in a lot of ways. And this issue ends with Tomoe going out on Noriyuki's orders to investigate the origins of this plague. They go to this town. They discover that everyone is dead there. The animals are dead. Uh, we need to get a message back. One of her men takes a sip from the well, immediately falls down dead. The well's poisoned. It's not plague. We desperately need to get a word out to Noriyuki. And then it's when they're attacked by uh, bandits, samurai. We don't know who they are. They don't have any crest on them. And that's when we get to see Tomoe become a total badass. And she's just as exciting to watch as uh, Miyamoto Usagi. If not more so. If not more so. That final page of the the first issue where she is screaming, Fierce. going face to camera, vicious, really, really terrifying. I would not want to be facing her down in a duel of any kind. Although because we have seen Tomoe and Usagi face uh, countless hordes of bandits and eradicate them, our confidence for these characters surviving is pretty high. Like, we don't doubt that Tomoe is going to end this issue or start the next issue up a corpse. However, with the introduction of Noriko in this storyline, the survivability of Tomoe comes into question for me. Like, while I was first reading it, I was like, oh, is she going to come out of this? Clearly, Usagi is going to come out of this because his name's on the title. His This is his book. But... I was, I was getting a little worried for Tomoe as we approached the ending. Noriko definitely raises the stakes for Tomoe mm. because she stirs up a lot of emotion in her and emotion in a woman is often considered erratic and dangerous. Yeah, which Lord Horikawa is happy to tell her. He's trying to exploit. Yeah. Before this issue, apparently Horikawa and Tomoe had some kind of disagreement where she said something about his ancestors, uh, like a samurai version of a yo mama joke, <laughs> and he took offense. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to plant seeds in... Lord Noriyuki's mind that perhaps there is something better for a woman to do that is more suited to their temperament. Because when uh, emotions get stirred up, they start doing things that are incompetent. And, and when they get too much leeway when it comes to giving advice, then that incompetence is going to start to infect male decision-making. At least that's how he's slinging it to Noriyuki in Noriyuki's court. Clearly, it stems from a place of jealousy. He wants more power in this arena. He's also a shill for Sonata, the next-door neighbor. So when Tomoe suggests they send somebody to investigate the Plague Village, he has the bright idea, well, we got to send somebody we trust, right, Noriyuki? Why don't we send Tomoe? And Noriyuki's like, that's a great idea. I love Tomoe. She's the best investigator. She's my best bodyguard. She'll kick butt at this. You better go, to Tomoe. You would be great at this. Don't you think so? And she has no choice but to go like, yeah, I, yeah, I could do this for you, Noriyuki. That's my job. That's the problem with having a lord who is now probably about nine and a half years old. <laughs> Very susceptible to suggestion. Yes, for sure. 
Motokazu, though, he knows what's up because as soon as he and Tomoe leave that room, he's like, I don't trust this Horikawa guy. <laughs> and she's like, you're not allowed to say that because technically saying that is treason, but you are totally right. <laughs> I love Motokazu. Me too. This is also his book. Yeah, it's where he comes into his own. He lives up to his father's legend. He's going to be like General Aikida. He is going to be an honorable samurai. He's gearing up to do something totally courageous. The next issue opens up with Usagi arriving into the story. He has appeared on the borders of the Gaishu province. And what happens when he arrives on the Gaishu province? He starts thinking about Tomoe. It is literally too cute because it is so clear he really cares what she thinks about him. And mm. and he anticipates conversations right. he's going to have with her because he's got a crush on her. Yeah, And he has this, uh, the, the previous storyline dealt with, or actually a couple storylines back, dealt with his travels with Jotaro, who is his son. What, 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 what? And he knows Jotaro is his son, but... He doesn't know if Jotaro knows that because Jotaro is being raised by another father and he he wants desperately to tell him. He knows he needs to tell him, but he, he couldn't bring it up. And Jotaro knows that Usagi is actually his dad because his mom told him, but he doesn't know that Usagi doesn't know that. So Jotaro that entire time was struggling with this secret. So father and son sharing the same secret between each other. He, uh, or Usagi at least, told Tomoe that I'm going to reveal that I am Jotaro's father. Like, I'm going to tell my son that I'm I'm dad. But by the end of that volume, which is Travels with Jotaro, which is my favorite run of Usagi Ojimbo comics, uh, he, he, he doesn't. He, he chickens out. He can't do it. And, and Jotaro also can't bring himself to deal with the emotions of that either. And so, yeah. Usagi is a rabbit. You think this would happen all of the time? Well, there might be lots of mini Usagis running all over Japan, but he only knows that one of them is definitely his son, and that's Jotaro. He is a courageous samurai, so clearly he is always prepared. <laughs> you you mean with rubbers? Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, were there rubbers at this time period? I think there's always been rubbers. There's always been rubbers? <laughs> I don't think they've always been made of rubber. Oh, man. Well, look, I, I, we don't have the time to get into the history of rubbers here on this podcast right now. Does he pull out? <laughs> Stop it, Lisa. No, no. I think what is important about this conversation, though, is what you alluded to earlier is that you know, he's concerned about what Tomoe is going to think about him not telling Jotaro that he's his dad. And of course, when they do meet up again, the first question she does ask him is, did you tell Jotaro the truth? And he's like, nah. And she's like, haha, hilarious. I knew that was gonna be the case. <laughs> I think that's the sweetest response, especially after slaying a whole bunch of samurai. And right. he just saved her, her light, her little fluffy tail. Big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A great action scene, you know, because she had her back up to the wall. She thought she was done for. In drops Usagi, deus machina style, last minute rescue. Back to back, they take care of those goons. It's very hot. Right before he showed up, though, we had a key moment of courage. And when she had, like you said, her back against the wall, she had a thought to herself. And that thought was, I failed you, Lord Noriyuki. Mm. So she thinks she's lost this fight. But even having had that thought, her next plan of action was to continue to fight. So even though she had lost, she's still going to see it through 
till the end. Yeah, yeah, doesn't give up, doesn't give up. Together, Usagi and Lady Tomoe start looking at clues. They're being real Batman, great <laughs> detectives, and they figure out that all of that dust was coming from a secret mining operation that Noriko was running for Lord Sonata. Turns out the whole plague situation was just a means of vacating the area so they can do this super secret mining project. And when Usagi sees Tomoe see Noriko, he sees like all of this, like she gets all verklempt, which yeah. is unlike her. Mm -hmm. Emotional. And, yeah. And Usagi in that moment tells her, you know, don't think with your emotions. There's no way the two of us can take on this mysterious woman and all of her samurai. Lady Tomoe's like, you're right. Uh, if I don't get word back to Lord Noriyuki, he's going to assume that I died of the plague, and then it's going to be weeks and weeks and weeks before anybody comes here again. So we have to keep our wits about us and get to the bottom of what exactly is going on. I need more information. Do you see how Usagi references her emotions differently than how Lord Horikawa references her emotions? Yeah, because I think that he is talking to her as a fellow human being. Hmm. What what do you think? I don't know. I I mean like uh, I don't think that I don't think that uh Usagi is being condescending to her. I think that she has visible emotions and he's just addressing the situation where Lord Horikawa is like uh this lady hurt my feelings and it's clearly because she's hysterical. I think uh, Captain Marvel would tell Tomoe that emotions are essential to battle and channeling those emotions are part of the fight. She doesn't need to stuff them. What would your, your personal love guru that you didn't include me in, Musashi, what would he say? <laughs> Musashi would be like, yo, you gotta, you gotta put your emotions aside. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can't argue that, Lisa. But meanwhile, anyway, that whole hysterical emotion thing that Horikawa was going on about with Noriyuki was really a ruse because his real, true, nefarious plan is to marry Tomoe off. That's how he's going to get her away from Noriyuki. And he sells it to Noriyuki going like, don't, don't you want her to have happiness? Don't you want her to have a perfect union? And of course, Lord Noriyuki is like, you know what? You might have a point there. And Motokazu, who's just paging it up in the background, like his face is like, what? Uh, and I love how that scene leads directly into the opening bits of the next issue, which is Motokazu packing up his gear and going out to find Tomoe to figure out what the situation is. He knows something dire is at stake and he can't just sit back and be a page. And that leads into his backstory. We get these flashbacks about how he came to the Gaishu province, how he is trying to live up to the memory of his father, to the honor of his father, and how life in the Gaishu province is not easy for him. He is constantly bullied by the other younglings around him. Because of who his father was. Be because of who his father was. Although his teacher, even though his teacher was somewhat of an enemy to his father, treats him with dignity because he knew that his father was a warrior. That's right. And he ended up being really impressed with Motokazu's 
character because even though he was being picked on, he was still keeping up with his studies. He never complained. He never tattled. And when three boys jumped him, yeah, Motokazu got a black eye, but th- those other two guys were in the infirmary. Yeah, yeah, they got some broken limbs. So when Sibo, <laughs> the teacher, told Lady Tomoe this, she, of course, loves Motokazu, and she doesn't want to see him abused, but also he's proven himself. So she's like, hey, why don't we make him Lord Noriyuki's personal page, which is how he ended up in that room with Lord Horikawa, and there's been no message from Lady Tomoe and he just disappears without saying anything to Lord Noriyuki, which is traitorous. Yes, but what this flashback does is show what he owes Lady Tomoe. And he, I mean, even if you go back to Grasscutter, he clearly owes Lady Tomoe a lot just for that adventure. But this this flashback solidifies their relationship as a couple themselves. This also establishes like, he is prepared to do something heroic. He yeah. has been preparing. He had to make a split decision and he had to consider, okay, do I remain being a page or do I perhaps go save Lady Tomoy's life and risk dishonoring myself? And he has the skills to do so. He's a little bit of a badass. That's right. The next issue opens with Usagi captured. He's strapped to a cross. And ripped. And, and totally ripped. And I always find it a little weird when... Usagi is out of his kimono, and we see how incredibly buff that dude is. Makes me feel funny. It makes me feel funny, Lisa, (laughs) but he is ripped. Uh, He's a little Arnold Schwarzenegger under there. But he's strapped to this cross, and he's being threatened by the Blood Princess uh, to have his arms, to have his fingers cut off and then have his hands cut off unless Tomoe shows up. But Tomoe has left. She's gone to get help from Noriyuki, and and uh, he's like, okay, well, this is going to happen. He's going to lose. He's going to lose some digits today. Of course, just in time, Tomoe returns. She has not gone back to give Lord Noriyuki the deets, and she's like, okay, I'm here. Will you release Usagi now? And Noriko's like, no. no. And she's like, but you gave your word as a samurai. Ooh. And Noriko's like, and you believed me, which I think is a clear example that there is not one. Bushido code for all samurai. Because here's two clearly disparate Bushido codes. And so they get thrown into jail. They get thrown into the mines. They're locked up. The orphan maker who lost an eye in this process is very happy about that. To Usagi. To Usagi, yeah. Usagi, he knows how to pick out an eyeball. He's very pie-may about that. (laughs) But that's where we reunite with the hunter from the start of this story. And we learn about the Gromwell bush. And he's extremely remorseful. And he tells them the whole story about, like, he found this Gromwell bush. It means that there's gold nearby. And the first thing he did was run to the authorities expecting a prize, expecting a reward. And there is one thing Stan Sakai (laughs) loves to do, and that's punish those who do anything that is even remotely in their own self-interest, including this poor peasant who was already starving. Because the way of the samurai is to be selfless, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, snitches get thrown into (laughs) this camp where they're a slave. That's the rhyme. I think so. Sure. Of course, when the actual slaving is supposed to begin, Tomoe 
resists, and Noriko starts slashing pe- peasants' throats like, I'm going to kill a peasant for every moment you stand there not working. And of course, Tomoe starts, picks up her basket, and she begins working. And Noriko's like, psh, you've always been like such a softy, even to like peasants. Hours later, after a long day of toting rocks, Usagi, I love this moment. Yeah, me too. Usagi is getting a back massage from Tomoy, and he is really just really loving that back massage. He looks so uh, relaxed and soothed. And they're talking camp security. And of course, as soon as Usagi's back massage is finished, and Tomoy's like, it's my turn. Of course, that's when Orphan Maker shows up, and uh, she never gets her back massage, and she's like, rats. To which I say, you should never settle for the second back massage, because <laughs> guess what? You don't want a back massage from somebody who's all relaxed and loosey-goosey. Yeah, I can tell you, I never get the first back massage in this household. No. I think Tamoy totally has dibs on the back massage. She's had way worse a day. And it's only going to get worse, because Orphan Maker is there to bring her to Noriko, and Noriko tells her, guess what? I'm not just your evil cousin. I'm actually... Your evil sister, and I killed our dad. I, well, I killed my dad, and then I killed our dad. And Tomoy is, of course, rageful and heartbroken. And guess what? Everything she accomplishes from this moment on, she's doing through a ton and with a ton of emotion. Yes, yeah. And she kicks butt. She does. However, she also is starting to feel a lot of regret for having come back in the first place because once they find the gold in the mine, we learn that Noriko and Orphan Maker are going to blow it up with the miners inside. So if she had sent message to Lord Noriyuki, they there might already be an army coming. Yeah, and it's hard to argue with that, right? Of course, there is an army coming, Lisa. An army of one. Motokazu is on his way. She tells Usagi, like, I've really messed up, so if there's a chance for me to escape on my own, I'm going to prioritize getting back to Lord Noriyuki over saving all of these people. And Usagi totally understands. Of course, that's right when Motokazu shows up. He busts them out. And the first thing Tomoe does is turn to the hunter and go like, hey, get everybody. We're doing this huge escape. And Usagi is like, hey, I thought you said you were going to escape on your own. And she's like, shut up. There's logic and then there's logic, right? And so she has to do what's true to herself. And she can't leave these people to die while she's you know, in flight trying to get extra help. And she's truly courageous. She is the opposite of selfish. She sees her worth in context with everybody's worth around her. Yeah, and she has faith that the two of them, Usagi and her, with Motokazu, Motokazu, they they can prevail, they can do it all. Or at least uh, help the majority of the people escape with their lives because some folks are definitely going to die because the plan is just to scatter once they free themselves from the cages. They, they killed all of the immediate guards. They kill all the immediate guards, but there's a whole bunch of bandits on the perimeter. And the rest of this issue is this massive brawl. It's like Takashi Miike's 13 Assassins, right? 
fight, 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 fight. Usagi and Orphan Maker have their final showdown. Uh, Usagi, you know, uh, loving to dispense a little justice, takes his other eye rather than kill him. He completely blinds the dude. I think Orphan Maker should be flattered, frankly. Yeah, why is that? Because Usagi has killed a whole bunch of other people. Yeah. So it's like a compliment. Yeah, he's he's elevated himself just a little beh- a little ahead of the rest of the goons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- okay, sure, sure, sure. And now we get the final battle between Noriko. Oh, we have to mention that the hunter did yes. try to redeem himself. He wants to redeem himself. So he decides to take it upon himself to blow the mine. Yeah, so he's in the process of creating this fuse of European gunpowder. We've all seen... Uh, Looney Tunes. I was going to say Mission Impossible. All dun, good. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, So Noriko and Tomoe square off, and there's like three amazing panels. There's the panel where Noriko is lunging towards Tomoe. There's the panel where Tomoe is lunging towards Noriko. And then there's the panel on the next page where they clash, and Stan Sakai illustrates it with this starry night-like background. And they're they're pretty evenly matched, but Motokazu comes in like clutch, Lisa. Is that how that go, like in like is in it like clutch in like clutch? Let stop, stop. It's it's one of those. It's in like clutch. I think it's in like clutch. I think that's what the kids said. I think 10 they, years ago. they would say he snatched. <laughs> he, he, uh, but he comes in. He whacks Noriko on the back, which exposes a blow. Tomoe takes it, disarms Noriko. Noriko's on the floor. She's easy target. She's easy fixings. Tomoe could strike her down, end it all here and there. She begs for her life, and Tomoe hesitates. And then that's when Noriko goes, ha, 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 and flees, runs, scatters. And yet there's nowhere to run because Usagi's in front of her. So she doesn't have too many options. She can only go right into the mine, which we know has been lit with this fuse. We can see the fuse rushing into the darkness of the mine. And it begs the question, like, does she know she's about to explode? Because uh, Tomoe is going to, was going to follow her into the mine. And it was Usagi who was like, no, that mine is going to blow. And, and Noriko taunts her and says, yeah, why don't you follow me in? Follow me in. And it's like she is trying to kill them both, maybe? And at the end of the comic, when Tomoe says, um, you know, she chose death rather than confronting me, that implies that that it's a suicide. I think that because of what Tomoe said, I think that that is Stan Sakai saying, Nuriko knew what she was doing. Hmm. And... Now the mind has blown, the dust clears, Tomoe and Usagi are like cheek to cheek. <laughs> and Lisa course, loves cheek to cheek. I, I don't do. want to get too uh, too much information here, but Lisa likes cheek to cheek. Yeah, I love to be cheek to cheek. But of course the dust clears, Motokazu is there. Moment ruined. <laughs> and Tomoe is just stunned and heartbroken. And she says like, she was an amoral demon, but she is still my sister. A word and a relationship that is new to her, but also it's the word that Noriko weaponized against her while they were fighting. Like when Noriko was on the ground and she was begging for her life, she called out to her as sister. And it was the word sister that made her hesitate. So Noriko knows the power of such a relationship and how she can use that relationship to her advantage. But for Tomoe to suddenly be 
bonded by blood in this way, to be this closely bonded by blood. Uh, I mean, it it reworks uh, her entire idea of who Noriko was or is. I think Tomoe sees Noriko as a certain set of circumstances. Mm. Before they were just cousins, right. but now they have the same father and that practically makes them the same person. And Noriko had pinned the death of Tomoe's father, their father, on him preferring Tomoe over her. Yeah, Sakai goes a long way in um, creating sympathy for Noriko. You understand why she is as angry as she is. Noriko has done so much wrong. I do not think that we would blame Tomoe if she decided or she had it in her heart to hate Noriko for the rest of her life. But, or kill Noriko. Right. But Tomoe has already proven herself as a person with this deep well of compassion where she was willing to dishonor herself to save all of these peasants, all of these other slaves. And she has it in her heart to forgive her sister, even after everything her sister has done, because she is not just her sister, but just like another human being who is a victim of their narrative. And I think that that's what makes Tomoe strong as a samurai. And I think it's also why we want to keep up with Tomoe's story. She is so complex. And clearly Usagi understands what's going on inside her heart and mind. Motokazu comes up to uh, Usagi and he wants to go to Tomoe. And Usagi says, you know, give her a moment. She needs some time alone. And Usagi even takes a beat there to compliment Motokazu on his bravery. You know, you behaved the way your father behaved. He would be proud. You honored him. Motokazu says, you know, I, I miss him. And Usagi responds, that's good. The dead need to be mourned. They should be mourned. And of course, he's looking over his shoulder at Tomoe mourning her sister. And that feels like the ending of the Mother of Mountains. Like, what more could there possibly be to say in this storyline? So I threw the book over my shoulder and I moved <laughs> on with my life. Turn the page and we see that maybe Noriko did not die in the mind. Maybe she survived the explosion. And in fact, she did. Spoilers, she did. But did she, Lisa? In actuality, it's kind of ambiguous. Yeah. Like, we see her crawling out of the rubble and she, you know, bites a couple Takagi on her way out. But then Tomoe wakes up and it was all this nightmare. And so, but, you know, like in literature and perhaps in life, like sisters have this kind of creepy sister bond. Yeah. Was the nightmare a vision or was it a dream, a fantasy? And I guess you're just going to have to keep on reading. Usagi hears her her cry from her nightmare and he rushes in and is like, what's going on? And she's like, I think that my sister's alive. And he's like, I don't know, probably not. And she's like, well, you know, the old samurai saying, you know, don't don't think that they're dead until you're poking the corpse with a stick. And Usagi's like, 
you know, we saw all of that. If it wasn't the explosion that killed her, it was all of that rubble. And she's like, okay. And he's like, okay, going back into another room to sleep separately. (laughs) And she's like, would you mind just staying for a little bit? And did they bone? That's also ambiguous. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it is ambiguous, but I don't think they bone. I think they did, because why else would Stan Sakite, like, so they're in the room together. Uh And then we get this shot. Like this aerial view view shot Uh of the building standing there. I think that that's like 80s movie lingo for (laughs) two people who are doing it in there. I I mean, I think it's up to the reader to decide if they did or if they didn't. I decide yes. You say yes. I lean to no. I feel like their, their romance, it's important that they don't actually consummate it. Like, you know, their honor won't allow them to consummate it at this point. He consummated with Jotaro's mom. Uh, that was when he, that was a long time ago. Oh, I don't know the context. I think you should ask me this question again next week when we discuss Tomoe's story. Oh, I'm dying to. But this story, The Mother of Mountains, concludes at the White Heron Castle next to Lord Noriyuki. Uh, they can't prove that Lord Sonata had anything to do with the shenanigans with the Blood Princess, so they just gotta have to let that rest. They are now aware of this gold mine, so that's good news, but they also have to deal with Motokazu, who betrayed the rules of Lord Noriyuki and went off on his own. Now he's punished, he's fired from being a page, but because he was so brave next to Usagi and Tomoe and helped rescue the land, uh, guess what? Promotion time. You're a samurai, kid. Yeah. And then, of course, turn of the page, and it's Usagi and Tomoe ready to have a little duel for fun. And will it be a a tie? Who will win? Who's the better swordsman? Tune in next week. Again, Tomoe's story. Yay! So here we are. Now we got to discuss what we have learned from the Mother of Mountains and Miyamoto and Tomoe. Lisa, we've talked a lot about courage this week. We see lots of examples of Tomoe and Usagi and Motokazu uh, and the farmer, the hunter, uh, performing acts of courage, walking in the way of the samurai. Uh, what, what, are, what are you pulling? What are you applying to your own life? Since reading this chapter um, in Let the Samurai Be Your Guide about courage, I've been thinking a lot about Where are my passions guiding me? Where are the areas that I can be courageous? Because I don't think, like, uh, fisticuffs is totally (laughs) not my thing. And I do have this compulsion to perform, whether it's as a musician, as a podcaster, uh, when I'm just in any group. Like, I have the need to, like, make sure that everybody's entertained. And I do think that... There is more courageous things that I can do with those skills and Mm -hmm. talents. And I do pride myself. I do have that sense of Kaizen, like where I do feel that need to constantly be honing my skills and, and improving myself. And I now have it in the back of my head that like my courage, the things that I feel are challenging me, like, that stamina is part of it. I Mm. definitely think that there are situations that like a person gets in where they should quit. Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. think that people should continue to do things 
just because they're hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, I do think you go like, this is hard for me. This is a challenge. How does what I'm doing relate to my principles? Um, My time, my effort, my life is a thing of value. And I need to use that value to where there is the most dividends, not just for myself, but for all of the selves that I am in context Mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. And like as a person that's in a relationship, I think that part of my job is putting yourself in context and and taking a look at your talents and trying to see where, where you're being called to courage and to encourage you to, you know, follow what, you're being called to do whatever that may be. Yeah. And, you know, for me this week, talking about courage, thinking about the way of the samurai, uh, I was I, I was dwelling on the word contentment a lot. Mm. You know, a few years ago, we've talked about it on the podcast in the past. You know, I quit my job uh, at Barnes Noble. I was a retail warrior. I was a manager. I had my own store. You were beloved. I don't think that that should go without saying. <laughs> I was a beloved store manager. Yes. Uh, but but I, I quit that to pursue uh, more creative endeavors. And that was, I think, a uh, courageous moment in my life. It was a leap of faith. But since then... I feel like I have also fallen into a pattern of contentment where I, I I took that leap and I did not die and I'm feeling pretty good. But now how do I challenge where I am right now? How can I be courageous in the position that I have and not just um, keep the status quo of this new era of Brad from, you know, stagnating, right? Uh, and so... Uh, Like, I know there are things that I could be doing. There are things that I could take advantage of where I could push myself a little bit further, put myself out there a little bit more, pitch more, whatever that might be. And then I also think about courage in the larger sense uh, of the greater world. What can I be doing to help uh, the world that I want to see, you know, we're, we're in an election year. We, you know, we, we, we just had the most insane, uh, presidential election, uh, in my lifetime. And I want this country and I want this planet to go in a certain compassionate direction. Uh, and, and what can I do to aid in that endeavor? Um, how can I use the gifts that I have to, to help those around me. And I don't mean like write some letters or whatever, all those are, those are great. But I mean like the gifts that all humans have, like we could all just try a little harder to reach out and connect. I do feel like this sense of panic of like, okay, now um, the, the reign of, of uh, terror and doom and gloom is coming to a close. Like I, I am not content to rest on my laurels either. And this is something we've talked about privately as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what the last four years taught us is that, you know, you you can't think like the battle's over. The moment you think the battle's over, uh, that's when it, the, the wound begins to fester. You have to constantly be healing that wound. You have to constantly be acting. You, you, you can't say like, hey, we won this election and um, we're good. We're but good. You also the battle continues. You can't presume because you're comfortable. Yes. Everyone is comfortable. Right, right, Because right. that's clearly 
not the case. Right, right. Because it's not um, an act of self that, that, that I'm pursuing. It's uh, the, the greater good. And whatever we choose to do, I want to embody ganbate. I want to go for broke. And whatever I choose to do, I want to commit to it fully and maybe fail and take some chances and, and do something that's really courageous with you. Yes. My spouse. Yeah. Fail. Fail again. Fail, fail better. better. I feel jazzed. I feel like I'm wielding my... Uh, emotional katana, my spiritual <laughs> katana, but we can't go out and do anything just a second because we got to wrap up this episode. So my sweetheart, yeah, what are we going to be up to next week? Miyamoto Usagi is that kind of character though, right? Where like he, you, you aspire to be like him. I'm totally exhilarated. Yeah. Right now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I love it. I love it. So next week we continue the march down the Wanderer's Road with Miyamoto Usagi and Tomoe Ame, but we won't be jumping as far into the future as we did last week. We're picking up immediately after the events of the Mother of Mountains with book 22, Tomoe's Story. And as I said at the start of this episode, it's the collection of comics I've been the most excited to talk about with Lisa. I think she's really going to dig this one. But Lisa, mm -hmm. our friends, our listeners, they need to know where to find you online. Where can they find you? And send their words of affirmation. That is so sweet. I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Brad. Yeah. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon. We will get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. We're going to be talking about the entire Punisher trilogy. Hooray? Yes, Lisa. Hooray. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes, and if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. So next week, the march down the Wanderer's Road continues with Miyamoto Usagi and Tomo. Whoop. Tomoya. Tomoya. I should just leave that leave in Leave that there. in.